You can sing that song at my funeral. Charles Wesley uh, singing about the nature of salvation. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Love that. Amazing love. How can it be? That's the question of the sinner. How can it be that thou, my God, holy God, would die for me? A compelling question and one that we should never get over in our journey of faith. Well, I got to tell you, I've enjoyed this uh, teaching series that we've been doing this month here in February. Uh, Your notes and your responses have let me know that at least some of you have also enjoyed this. And I am really happy. In fact, I would say this. I'm proud of our church in this sense, that for many people, you know, maybe many churches, uh, money is a forbidden uh, topic. It's, it's uh, forbidden territory to talk about it. And I came into this series with a little bit of a, well, I wonder how this will go. And uh, you once again have proven yourself to be a, let's see what the Bible has to say about this kind of church. And I love that about you. And uh, so thank you so much for... Uh, what you have, uh, how you've responded in this series. Praise God for you. So what have we learned this month in February as we've talked about buried treasure, a biblical view of uh, money and finances? And what we've learned is that, first of all, we're to keep our lives free from the love of money. Why? Because God has promised, never, never, never will I leave you. So we then can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Great verse, Hebrews 13. Remember that series? Yeah, we got done with that not so long ago. And so we moved on then to talk about the fact that uh, money is the clearest indication of what we really love. And where we put our money is the best. You want to know what you love, where your real passions are? Look at where you put your money. Jesus said it the same. And so since money is important and since Jesus talked about it more than he did faith and prayer and uh, heaven and hell combined, what we see then is that when it comes to our money and our possessions, it's all his. Everything in this world is his. And that in this, we are just the FedEx guys. God has temporarily given us his resources to use in his way. We're just the delivery boys. That's all that we are. Which is why Jesus tells us it is so short-sighted to try to accumulate things in this world that we can't keep. Think of our, think of our missionaries, the Fries, learning that lesson in a very profound way right now. They've lost what was valuable. Although knowing them, I don't think it was that valuable to them. They're very godly people, but we need to pray for them. So we can't keep it. Don't get to keep it. But what we can do by giving it to the Lord and to his purposes, we can send it ahead. That's what Jesus says. Don't store up treasure here. Store up treasure in heaven where thieves don't break in and steal. And that by giving to God, giving of our resources to him, God stores it up in some kind of a heavenly bank account that is waiting for us when we arrive and that we will get to enjoy for all eternity. So how do we do this? And this is where we've had really four characteristics of stewardship that we've been uh, talking about, really two so far. The first one is simplicity of life. 
that a steward is somebody who lives simply in this sense. They live below their means as much as they can so that they free up monies that they can give to God's purposes. If you live at your level of income or over your level of income, there is no way to store up treasure in heaven because there's nothing that you can give. So we must live simply below our means. In other words, we don't buy into the world's perspective on money, which is that if you have it, you flaunt it. If you don't have it, you go into debt to act like you do. That's our culture today. Not the Christian. For the sake of the the kingdom, we live below our means. And then we talked about this concept of tithe, that Hebrew word tenth, uh, that becomes a redemptive principle in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, while subtly reiterated by Jesus Christ, it moves into more of a grace-giving concept where we are giving as much as we can, whatever we can for the sake of the Lord. And so we studied that whole tithing thing, and I suggested to you that it remains, tithing remains a very helpful starting point for new Christians and for uh, 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 young people. What do, how do I give to God? Well, we, let's begin with a tenth. Let's begin with the tithe. It's very helpful in that way. But it must not be made a legalistic rule since grace giving calls us to give whatever we're able to. Okay? So bear that in mind. And then Sunday night, we had a, if you were here Sunday night, we had a, a guest speaker that came and just gave some practical suggestions on stewardship. And I just thought I might reiterate a few things that he said. One of the things he said was, in order to do this, the fundamental need that there is for a budget, a budget. How are you going to know what you're going to give to God unless you plan ahead? Even Paul says to do that, to plan ahead. And uh, so he talks about a budget and there's resources to do that. And I would suggest that's a very good a very good idea. Secondly, he talked about just wise ways of managing your money. You know, God's people need to wisely manage the resources that we have. And he gave some suggestions. One I just want to note, because it's such a, a, a good one that he said, was uh, the whole matter of charitable giving. You know, we live in a, we have, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, but in America, Caesar gives tax breaks. Okay? And uh, to make the most of that, and he made some, gave a suggestion, one in particular, of giving appreciated items, stock or whatever. You donate it to a charitable cause. You write off all of the value. You pay no tax on the capital gain. Not a bad idea. Many other things like that. You can talk to people that know that kind of thing. But the big point is that we need to be wise with what we have so that we can do more. Be wise with what we have so what we can do more for the kingdom. And that's got to be our motivation. Now, before we get into our new text, I've got two questions I want to answer. Um, you might view this as the addendum to last Sunday's message. Two questions I think that, that uh, have been asked. How, here's the first one. If I want to give to God, where do I give it? I want to give to God. What do I do? How do I do that? And I remember when I was a kid, literally this is true. When I was a kid, I remember sitting in church after the offering at Hagerman Baptist Church in Waterloo, Iowa, as a boy, like four years old, and after the offering plate went by, I leaned over to my dad, and I said, how do they get the money to God? And in my mind, I remember having a picture of a rocket. Like after the service, they had a rocket that they <laughs> sent it up to God, you know. And uh, so that was confusing to me. How do they get the money to God? Is, is that what we do? Yes, actually it is. No. We give to God when we give to his kingdom work. We give to God when we give to his purposes, what he's doing. So the question then is, what is God's work on earth? What is he doing here? And the answer is that God is building his church. 
God is building His church. We cannot give to the universal church. The local church is the representation of Christ's presence in the community. So the local church then becomes, for us here in northwest Indiana, or wherever we happen to be living, what God is doing. In Acts, we see that when people gave to God, they, were, they would sell possessions, they would do whatever they would do, and they would bring the money to the church. And the church acted as kind of like a distribution center to allocate funds and to meet needs, whatever it might be. It was the church. There was only one uh, in Jerusalem there, but that's what they were doing. Now, unless you think that this is self-seeking in me saying this, okay, just ask this question. Look at the Bible and ask this question. Where did God give? To whom did God himself give? And the answer, of course, Ephesians 5, is that he gave to the church, that Christ himself died for the church. And I would suggest to you that the local church ought to be our top priority in our, in our giving. But then we say, well, wait a second, there's all these other really cool organizations that are out there, these parachurch organizations. What about them? What opportunity, responsibility do we have towards them? Mission agencies, schools, many other things. I just say, hey, you know what? It's great to support them as well. And we as a church have partnered with many uh, parachurch organizations. John Bates here with the camp is an example of that. And we're very supportive of them, and we think it's great. However, let's remember that Christ didn't die for a parachurch organization. He didn't die for a school. He didn't die for a mission agency. He died for the church. He's coming back for the church. And good parachurch organizations, and many of them do this if you read their material, will encourage you to give to your local church first. And then, beyond that, to say, okay, God, what else would you have me to do? How can I be a blessing beyond this? So, be kingdom-minded in it. And I would say also, not every charity is a kingdom-minded thing. I don't think you can give money to the, you know, the, the, the Tulip Foundation in, of Crown Point or something and say, oh, I'm giving to God. I think God likes tulips, but he's not really that concerned for their salvation. So, don't, I mean... The, Think strategically. How can I get the biggest bang for my buck? What organizations are really doing something for the Lord? And invest with them and be a part of what they're, what they're doing. So, again, a starting point, just a suggestion. Tithe to the local church. And then after that, pray about, God, what else would you want me to do? Who else would you want me to partner with? That's been my personal practice. And it's been a blessing to me, so I would suggest that. So if I want to give to God, where should I give? There's the first question. Here's the second one. If you listen to last week's message, you might say to yourself, wait a second, what about savings and investment? Is that all wrong? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't do that, that shouldn't be a part of our financial situation? And I would say to you that what Christ comments in Matthew ought need to be balanced with other passages like these, for example. Proverbs says this, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Also, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. It doesn't say don't have flocks. It says know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. And not many of us have flocks and herds, but in the old times that meant money, investment, your finances, etc. So here's the point. Being generous with Money assumes that you've got money to be generous with. Okay? The parable of the Good Samaritan, if the Good Samaritan didn't have money, he never could have been the Good Samaritan. Okay? So the point isn't 
against having money, investing money, saving money. What it does say is that uh, it is the accumulation of assets while living simply, simplicity, with simplicity. Are you with me? I didn't say that right, but I think you're getting it. Okay. He's talking, let me say this again. It is, it is, it is, not the proper preparation for future expenses that he's talking about. We all need to be doing that. It is why you are doing what you are doing with your money. If it is the accumulation of things so that I can indulge myself, so that I can feel security in my money, that is what he's talking against. Don't do that. To ask these kind of questions, why am I saving? Is my hope and faith for my future needs in my retirement account, or in God's promise to meet my needs. And I would summarize what I'm trying to say with this statement. Save responsibly to meet life's needs without trusting it, loving it, or owning it, and give away as much as you will be glad you did when you are dead. Give away as much as you will be glad that you did when you're dead. Because one thing you can know about your financial future, you're going to be dead someday. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Don't trust, don't love the things that you're accumulating. Think about eternity. Think about the future and invest wisely for that. So two questions I just wanted to, to, uh, to answer since you might have some questions on that. There's more materials in the, in the, at, the, at the bookstore and others that you can check it out. Okay, now let's get into the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you turn there with me. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and in chapters 8 and 9, he is, I don't know if you'd want to call it fundraising, he is talking about giving. There's a gift that he is uh, gathering for the church at Jerusalem. And the church at Jerusalem was uh, going through a terrible time. They had extreme poverty. There was all kinds of trouble there. And so Paul is gathering a gift from the Gentile churches to take to the Jerusalem church. And so he writes to the the church at Corinth, which was a wealthy church, and says, hey, I want to come and I want to gather some money for our brothers and sisters at Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, I just want to let you know what other churches have done. And he talks about the church at Macedonia. And the church at Macedonia was like, was like uh, the church of Haiti or something. Very poor, very poor community. And they gave very generously. And he informs the church at Corinth, the wealthy church, what the poor church had done. And then he begins in verse 6 now with an analogy. And I think you'll understand it. We begin reading. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided. By the way, that's women as well. You don't get out from that women. It's a sort of general. Okay, I'm a woman. I guess I don't have to think about this wrong. Each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a, say that word with me, cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, so notice that repetition, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed 
and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be, here's this verse we've said every week, I think, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So, an analogy. And what is the analogy? Farming. And where do we live? Indiana. So this is something that we ought to be able to really get into. Most of us, some of us drove by a cornfield or some kind of field to get here. We understand farming because we're Hoosiers, right? So this ought to resonate in our, in our hearts today. The whole idea of sowing and planting of seeds. He says in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever gives generously, sows generously, will also reap generously. So there is a universal principle that is at work here. Sow a little, reap a little. Sow a lot, reap a lot. It's still true today. And the principle is this. The size of the harvest, all things being equal, is determined by the amount of seed that is sown. Makes sense, doesn't it? And what we find then spiritually is that God operates on a similar harvest principle when it comes to our giving. The more that we give to the Lord, he promises to uh, bless us that much more. In other words, the monies I give, the resources that I give are like seeds that I am spreading in the harvest of righteousness. And God promises no matter what we spread, he will give us more back. That's what it says. The more you give, the more you get. The more generous we are to God, the more generous he is to us. And there isn't a one of us that can outgive God. We can't. You want to know why? Because he's richer than we are by a lot. You can't outgive God. Now, some of you right now are going, oh, I don't like where this is going. Okay, well, let's just avoid the critical error that you're afraid of in your mind. And this is something important to understand is that some people sort of look at this as like a divine guaranteed lottery where I put my dollar, I buy my, my spiritual ticket of some kind and God promises that I win. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rich. And if you watch TV preachers very much, they'll say things like this. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And they'll say, oh, Lord, bless the seeds are being sown right now. And I know that you have the ability right now, Lord, I know that you have the ability to bless them in Jesus' name. And to make them rich, Lord, to the praise of God, they'll say. Those kind of things. And what happens is, here's the error that they're making, is that they are assuming that the generosity that God is, that Paul's talking about here, is a guaranteed financial reward for giving. The Bible does not say that. The Bible doesn't not say that, but the Bible doesn't say that. You understand that, what I'm saying? I'll just move on. I don't even have to explain myself then. If my motive in giving to God is so that I can get more wealth back from him, which then I can keep and I can indulge on myself, then I have misunderstood God's motive in making me wealthy or being generous to me. And that's what the TV preachers do. They appeal to the fleshly desires they make, they make spiritual appeals to fleshly desires and people listening or whatever are like, oh, wow, this sounds so great. And so they send in their money and they're assuming, well, I give a hundred, I'll give a thousand, I get a thousand back, right? And they're waiting for the check in the mail. 
That's good fundraising. It's horrible theology. That's not what he's talking about here. At the same time, though, let's not deny the fact that we do receive from God. And that is the motive that Paul is bringing up. You, it's not wrong to give to God in order to receive. The question is, what do I want to do with what I receive? Is it so that I can, I can indulge myself? Or is it so that I can be generous again? And you see, that's what God wants to do. He wants to bless us, not so that we can serve ourselves, but so that then we can be more generous back. In other words, the principle is this. I give, I get, so I can give again. And guess what? God gives back more. And then I get to give again. And God gives back more. And I get to give again. At any point in that where I think, oh, I can't wait to get it back. Because then I'm going to go buy the plasma TV. That's somebody told me I've talked about every week for three weeks. So now you know one of my weak spots, I guess, with that. But I just throw that in. Okay? If, but if my mentality is I'm going to do this so I can serve myself, we have, we have completely uh, uh, stepped out of why God is, wants us to be a part of this process in the first place. It is not for us. Again, it is not about us. This whole thing isn't about us. It is about God. And we are tools that God uses that we get the joy of being a part of. But as soon as we take the focus off of God and on us, done. It's over. Now, that said, does God sometimes bless back financially? Yes. No question about it. But if we think it's a guaranteed thing, then we we are mistaken. Here's what we can know. He always blesses us back spiritually. Always. He promises to give us back more. One story, one thing that happened, I, I mentioned to you in Malachi, this principle of tithing. By the time you get to Malachi, you know, you get to Amos's day and the people were giving, but their hearts weren't in it. And God's like, I'm really sick of you. You get to Malachi's day, they're like, well, then we just won't give at all. So they're not giving any tithes at all. And God now through the prophet Malachi says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You, but you ask, well, how do we rob you? What are you talking about? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Here's the promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. It was a test for the Israelites. Do you think that I can meet your needs? Don't you think that I can be more generous to you than you can be to me? And God's like, test me in this. I will do it. The question is, why does God bring it back to us? And what do I want to do with it? Do I want to give again? So how, what happens here then is that we need to want the spiritual blessings of giving enough to be generous to God. And if God gives us back financially, then fine. But we want the spiritual blessings that go along with that. Spiritual blessings like how it kills the love of money and anxiety over finances that so many of us are dominated by every single day, worried about what's going to happen, thinking about finances, hanging on to the stock market, worrying about this, worrying about that. It frees us from that because the kind of faith that gives is a kind of faith that trusts in God's promise to meet my needs. How it enriches us by giving us meaning and purpose so that we see our money at work in the kingdom. You could talk to so many people that live for themselves for so long. Then they got involved in some kind of ministry and they started giving to that ministry. And now life has meaning. There's something more than me that I'm excited about. It's great. 
And then whatever the blessing is, financial or otherwise, God gives back to us with more generosity than we could ever have for him. And that ought to be our motivation. I want to receive from God. I give because I want to receive from God. I want more of him, not more money, not, not more, more stocks, not more whatever it is that you're into, but I want more of God. And by giving, I get more of him. So that brings us then to our third characteristic of a steward. And here's the word, okay? Third word is oblatunity, okay? Oblatunity. You're saying to yourself, hmm, not sure what that means. Well, here's why, because I made it up. Okay, this is a word that I just made up. I've used it before, but it fits so well here in 2 Corinthians. Let's define the word, though. You might look at the word, Oblatunity, and you see, uh, you see the word obligation in there, don't you? And then you also see the word opportunity. So all I did is I took obligation and opportunity and I squished them together. And we have this concept, oblatunity. Now what is an oblatunity? An oblatunity is when I want to do what I have to do. When I want to do what I have to do. Now, let me give you an example. Men, I have a question for you. We just got done with Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, did you do something special for your wife because you had to or because you wanted to? And the answer is together. Every husband here, one, two, three, because I wanted to. Yeah. But I'm a little confused because didn't you kind of have to as well? I won't even make you answer that one, all right? But you kind of had to, didn't you? But you're saying that you wanted to. Well, which is it? And somebody said yes or both. I wanted to do what I had to do. And there are many things now that are obligations that we do that we don't necessarily want to do. Like we're about to pay taxes, aren't we? And do we have to do that? Yes. Do we want to do that? And all God's people said, no, right? Not, at least not in one cent more than I have to. Or uh, another example would be uh, going to the dentist. And I know that we have a dentist or two in the congregation right now. And they're like, no, you have to go. Do we want to go to the dentist? We love dentists, don't we? We love them as people, but we don't like what they do to us. So we sort of go out of duty more than because we, I can't wait to get drilled or something. It just doesn't work that way. Cleaning bathrooms. I think I've met somebody that said they like it, but it's, you know, that's a weirdo, isn't it? We, (laughs) I would propose this. Just do what I do. Don't clean them. Eventually, somebody that visits your house will have mercy on you and will take care of that. That's kind of my approach to it. But we don't, we don't like to clean the bathroom. We do it because we have to. How about this one? Visit the in-laws. Okay. So we could go on. We could have fun with this. But do you get the point that I'm, that I'm making? That there are things that we do because we have to do, even though our hearts aren't really in it. Back to the Valentine's question. Why would no thinking husband here this morning shout out that I did something on Valentine's Day because I had to? 
Number one, because your wife would kill you for doing that. Okay? But the second reason is the reason that she would kill you is that she is not honored by your duty love. She's not honored by duty chocolate and duty flowers, although some of them would take whatever they could get with that. But they're not honored by that. What they are honored by is when we say, honey, I have this gift for you because I love you and I want you to know that. And this gift is not my love. It is merely an expression of how much I care for you. And in that moment, you could have the, you know, a one cent gumball. It wouldn't matter. Well, I take that back. Like it shouldn't matter. Maybe I can say it that way. Because she would see the love behind it and would be honored and cherished by it. And that's when what you have to do becomes what you also want to do. That is an oblatunity. Now let me ask this question, Bethel. Do we have to give to God? And the answer is, yes, we do. You may say, oh, I don't know about that. You just look right down to, um, look down to uh, the verse I have. Verse, look at verse 13. It makes it very clear that giving, giving is an act of obedience. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Your obedience. We have to give to God. No question about it. If we don't give to God, are we being disobedient? Yes, we are. And the 40% of evangelicals that claim to know Christ and don't give anything at all, that is a haunting word. However, this is the key. God is not looking for duty money. God is not looking for duty donation. God is not honored by our have-tos. He is honored by our want-tos. And when it comes to giving to God... This is the struggle for us because it is so hard to give. But God is looking at our hearts and he wants us to give generously because we love him. And we delight to do it in a response to the generosity that he has given to us. And that's why it says in that verse that God loves a cheerful giver. It's not the amount, it is the heart behind the amount. You get the heart right, the amount will be fine as well. It is the cheerfulness, the gladness, the Greek word there, hilaron. Hilaron. Does that sound like any English word? Hilarious. Giddiness, cheerfulness, gladheartedness. God loves a giddy, cheerful giver. It means, it means I'm excited to give. And I just, you know, think for a moment what that would be like in a, in a service. A church service, maybe. You know, we oftentimes, somebody, will, there'll be a special moment in the service, or we've had a few even here this morning in our service, and we'll applaud, and there'll be some kind of excitement about it. We see 30, 30 people joining the church. We're kind of like, yeah, that's cool. We love that. We applaud for them or something. I have never been to a church service when they announced the offering that people applauded. Never. But imagine what that would be like if we really sort of got into this. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, we're so glad to have you here. Good to sing, good to pray. We're going to worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings. All right, that's great. Yeah, I've been waiting for this one, waiting all week for this one. 
Oh, the plate goes by. Yeah, baby. Woo. <laughs> they get done passing the plates. It gets to the back and we start chanting, let's do it again. Let's do it again. You know, encore, encore, something like that. How great that would be. Imagine the visitors that week. These people are crazy. Let's get out of here. We don't want any part of a church like this. Although I think it might be to the contrary, but think of it. You know, we applaud for these other things. But why not being giddy and happy to give to a God who's been so generous to us? That's the thing, is that it is a response of my heart to the generosity, the joy of God in saving me is the joy I have now in giving back to Him. How great that would be. And why doesn't Paul make, why does Paul even have to make this point? I mean, he doesn't say, he doesn't say God loves a cheerful eater or God loves a cheerful golfer or God loves a cheerful child on the merry-go-round. Why does he not, why doesn't he say that? It's because he doesn't have to say that. We naturally enjoy and get excited about those kind of things. But when it comes to giving naturally in our flesh, this is the hardest thing for us to do. We get excited about receiving. Okay? We don't get excited necessarily about giving, especially generously. So I would like to just, for the rest of our time, answer the question, where does happiness come from? How do I get happy? How can I be a happy giver, a cheerful giver? And the first thing to realize is that giving is a response to God's generosity to me in Christ. If we don't get this point, this will seem like absolute nonsense. This is why if I was doing, if I was speaking this on Oprah or something, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Because this is the, this is, this is the theology behind it. Here's the verse. It's uh, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. You want to talk about being rich? How rich was the Son of God? Infinite. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, for us, he became poor. The impoverishment, the humiliation of his incarnation and his life on earth and all of the shame that went along with that for him, he became poor for us so that through his poverty of experience, you might become rich. The ability to overcome the love of money begins with the effect of God's love in my heart. I am now, as a sinner, like we were singing, how, uh, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If that little verse was truly in our hearts, giving wouldn't be a problem. Why? Because I cannot believe how generous God has been to me in Christ. I mean, my lostness, my sin, my despair, and yet he loved me and gave Christ for me. That's the, that's the foundation of it. If you don't have that, there will never be any happiness in any kind of service to the Lord. Now, though, I'm overwhelmed that God would love a sinner like me, that he was generous to me. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he was generous to us. And now I am generous to him because he was generous to me. And if you're here today and there is no desire in your heart to give to the Lord, there's no even, you know, even little like nudging to be generous to the Lord. I would ask you this question. Have you really tasted of the grace of God? Really? Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man, Jesus went to his house. He said, you know what? 
Today I give half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus says, today salvation has been realized in this home. Why? Because by giving to the poor, he earned his salvation? Not at all. But his generosity was an indication that he really got it. That his heart had truly tasted of the love of God. It showed it. It revealed it. Glad giving begins with a transformation that, that Jesus brings to our hearts. So I would say if you don't want to give to the Lord, you need to check your spiritual pulse. Is there any, is there any heartbeat there? Really. Not the pretend thing of coming to church and all that, but really. Is it there? Secondly, giving breaks the stronghold that money has on my heart. Giving breaks the stronghold that money has on my heart. And if we were honest here today, it is a stronghold in every single one of our hearts. No question about it. That's just the nature of money. It's so easy to love it. I remember a few years ago, I was having a struggle in my, uh, in my life in the, in the area of, of money. And it wasn't what I would call a sin thing. It was a, a situation where I found my motives and my heart and my thoughts were subtly going in ways that I knew did not please the Lord in a particular area. And I thought about it. I prayed about it. I tried to rationalize my way out of that. You know how you can do that with conviction? When conviction comes, you sort of go into this. It's a, I'm a PhD in rationalization. I don't know about you. But I was, I mean, my, my, that doctorate was working overtime, trying to rationalize my way out of it. But I felt helpless. Helpless. Didn't know what to do. So finally, what happened was I just got fed up with it and I decided to just give it away. I just, I'm sick of this. I'm going to give it away. And I can tell you that it was a tough decision at the time, but I'm glad I did now. Money, I find, is like the ring in Lord of the Rings. You know, whoever had the ring, you know, there was something about the ring itself. It just, you wanted it, you know. There was just this desire to have it. And then once it's away, then you're like, you snap out of it. That's kind of how money is. You know, once we have it, it sort of, wow, it gets us. Once we give it away, it's like, wow, what was I thinking? Why was I loving that so much? Why did I care so much? That's what giving does. It frees us from the power of money. It utilizes the principle that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to love God more? Give to him. And then find out what your, watch what your heart does as you give to the Lord. It just starts thinking about the Lord or you get involved in some mission work or some other thing and you're supporting it or the church. And all of a sudden now you start thinking about the things of God more. It's, it's weird, isn't it? That's what happens. Third point. This is a long one, probably the longest in my pastoral ministry, but I needed a lot of space to say what I wanted to say. As I give to God... My love for money and things decreases. That's what happens. And the anxiety and discontentment that goes with them as well. And my love for God increases. And the freedom of faith that goes with him. So that then in that my giving becomes a joy to me. That's how it works. And only giving can do this. Now you may say, well, wait a second. What if, what if I don't want to? 
totally. What if I'm not the cheerful giver? I'm going to wait till I'm the cheerful giver, then I'll be generous to God because he was a cheerful giver, not a non-cheerful giver, so therefore I shouldn't give anything, right? Well, should we obey God even when we don't feel like it? (laughs) The answer is obvious. Don't wait. That struggle, by the way, will be ongoing. I was taught tithing as a kid, and I think it's a it's a question of lordship every time, you know. It's, a, it's an ongoing struggle. You never get over that. But every gift is a one more day of letting the Lord be Lord of my finances. And cheerful giving is more important than, I'm sorry, cheerful giving is more will than emotion. And sometimes as we pray, Our emotions, the right ones, will come tagging along after it. Do what's right and pray over it. And oftentimes God will give the correct emotions. It's a struggle, though. It is. To always want to do, get excited, cheerful, woohoo, about what I have to do. I remember uh, when I was a, when I was a, uh, between my, my senior year in college and my freshman, or my senior year in high school, my freshman year in college, I entered this contest where the winner of the contest got a free year of college tuition paid for. And that was my motive for entering the contest. It wasn't for artistic expression or anything like that. Not that it wasn't art. I won't even tell you what it was. But anyway, I entered this contest. And uh, it wasn't interpretive dance or anything, so don't get worried. But uh, <laughs> I entered this contest. And so uh, it's kind of a big deal, you know, and worked hard on it. And, and uh, went to the national thing with it. And... and uh, you know, a year of college tuition at the time was $4,000. This is 20 years ago. I know a long time ago, back in the Stone Age when I went to college, but that's how much it was. And uh, so I remember at the award ceremony that we're sitting there, and they're just about to read the winner. And as, as he's about to read it, in my heart, I prayed to the Lord. I said, God, if you let me win, I'll tithe on it. And the winner is, from Cedar Falls, Iowa, Steve DeWitt, you know. And my family's there. Whoa. We are all excited. I'm like, yes, yes. Oh, no. Because <laughs> 10% of $4,000 was $400. Is $400. I made three thirty-five an hour detasseling corn in Iowa. That is a lot of hot, sweaty. $400 was a lot of long days. It was basically, as I recall, all that I had. And I'm like, oh. And I sort of think to myself, well, did, does the Lord really want you to do that, you know? And certainly he realizes that I'm young and foolish, you know. And <laughs> so what happened was months go by. And it was one of these little nagging things in my heart because I knew what I had said to God in my heart. I didn't tell anybody else about it. And I was not cheerful about it at all. I was like, oh, man. The card was already written. Why did I pray that? You know, it didn't change anything. (laughs) I could not get happy about it. You know, a college student, I'm like one penny, two penny, three penny, you know. And so anyway, what happened was that months later, Almost a year later, as I recall, there was an opportunity that needed about $400, and I took care of that and gave to it. 
I didn't have joy, though. I wasn't very cheerful about it. But today I remember it with fondness. Because long after the 400 hours means anything, for a young man thinking about going into ministry, it was important to settle that matter of who was Lord of my money. So, do we view it as opportunity? Do we want to do what God would have us to do? Is it a stronghold in our hearts? And you may say, well, how can I know if money is or not? A.W. Tozer helps with these questions. What do we value most? What would we hate to lose? What do our thoughts turn to most frequently when we are free to think of what we will? And finally, what affords us the most pleasure? How would you answer that this morning? Is money the answer to any of those questions? Because God doesn't want your money. You want to know why? It's already his. But the one thing in this world that he may not own is your heart. And that's what he wants, is your heart. So, can you believe that God wants to restore that image, his image in you? You were made to reflect his image. And he is a generous God. And I have been so pleased, by the way, again, just to say with our response this week or this month to this series. You know, we've had some encouraging offerings this month. I'm not impressed. You want to know why? Any church will have good offerings when the pastor's speaking on giving. If that's all that this is, it'll be a tremendous disappointment. We're not talking about a month, a lifestyle of stewardship, a lifestyle of generosity to the Lord. It's not this month or next month, but next year and next decade, a Godwardness with our money. And for some of us, this is like a radical paradigm shift, especially for our new Christians that are here. And we just want to say to you, we love you in this. We understand. We do. We got lots of grace and room for growth. This is just something that's a part of following Jesus. That's what it is. He's the Lord of everything. And if you are not, listen, listen to me, everybody. If you are not a new Christian here, and this is a radical paradigm shift, I would suggest to you very lovingly as your pastor that what needs to happen is for you to get alone with the Lord and to confess to him whatever sin lies behind your lack of generosity. Maybe that's a materialism. Maybe that's a lack of faith in God's ability to meet your needs, whatever it might be. But confess that to the Lord and receive his grace. He is a gracious God, so loving, so compassionate towards us. And then get on the path of obedience towards a life of opportunity. And I just hope that we can be the kind of church where generosity is in the air. You know, it's just kind of in the air. Think of, have you read online that all the things that those $10 have done that we handed out? It's amazing. I mean, think of what those few thousands of dollars have done for the kingdom of God. Imagine in a church like ours, if God was king over all of our money. Think of what we could do. We could rock the world. We literally could. That would be great and very exciting, which leads then to the final key. And here it is. It's eternity. Stewardship is simplicity, opportunity, generosity, and eternity. I grew up with this little phrase, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's given to Christ will last. 
I believe that to be true. And my desire is for you to be rich towards heaven. Rich towards heaven. When you stand before the Lord, for there to be treasure there that you banked, that you sent ahead, and that you get to enjoy for all eternity. So don't bury your treasure, friends. Invest it where it matters. Someday I think you'll be glad that you did. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We love you. We praise you today. I thank you for this series. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who have listened so well. Form us into your image. May generosity be a mark of our life and our church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.